Because we're entering a new section in our study of the book of Romans, I want you, if you will, to turn to Romans chapter 1 and follow along as I read the English Standard Version of Romans 1, 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the catechism which the English and American Puritans first used, which is still being used today, has as its first question and answer these familiar words. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is akin, I think, to what the Apostle Paul was teaching when he penned Romans 1, 16 and 17. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, we glorify and enjoy God as our chief end, because He has brought us this glorious revelation of Himself in the Gospel, which is deliverance from sin based upon our not having a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us by virtue of what He has accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary. This vicarious, substitutionary atonement which Christ accomplished for believers, satisfied the wrath of God which comes against sinners in this world. And it is to this concept of the wrath of God that Paul wants us to now turn in his letter to the Romans. It's almost as though Paul has assembled a courtroom scene where he is about to marshal irrefutable evidence on behalf of God Himself against sinners who need to be shown the judgment of God's wrath. Paul is, as it were, the prosecuting attorney with God Himself as the judge. And mankind Himself is the accused. And Paul is bringing an indictment against sinful mankind, showing that instead of pursuing as their chief end the glory and the enjoyment of God, man is pursuing his own course, completely away from this enjoyment and glorifying of God forever. And this is precisely what Paul does In Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. And I can therefore see Paul in the courtroom or at the bar, if you please, of God's great bar of justice, giving us three R's in these verses as his argument. One, the revelation of God's wrath, verse 18. The revelation of of God's wrath. Secondly, the reasons for the wrath of God, verses 19 to 23. The reasons of the wrath of God, verses 19 to 23. And thirdly, the results of the wrath of God, verses 24 to 32. The revelation of God's wrath, verse 18. The reasons for the wrath of God, Verses 19 to 23, and the results of the wrath of God. Verses 24 to 32. And over the next couple of times that we meet together, Lord willing, we'll be seeing these three R's of Paul's argument in the courtroom of God's bar of justice against men. Let's look first of all at the revelation of God's wrath in verse 18. I told you in our last two studies together 
that verses 16 and 17 that I quoted a moment ago end Paul's introductory remarks to this letter to the Romans. And it is true that Paul reveals God's wonderful, glorious revelation of righteousness which sets us free from the law of sin and death. But in these two brief verses, he really only hints at or summarizes for us the salvation which he'll expand on later on in this letter. And since this introduction is now complete, from Romans 1.18 all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul wants to tell them about another kind of revelation. And it isn't the revelation of the righteousness of God that brings salvation. It is the revelation of God which speaks of His wrath which brings condemnation. It is a revelation of God which brings wrath against the unrighteousness of mankind because of his sin. It's Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on the depravity of man. And it isn't pretty. It isn't pretty at all. In other words, before he begins to unfold the glorious good news of the gospel, which he's hinted at, in his introduction, specifically in verses 16 and 17, he must show them the bad news of why there's even the need for salvation in the first place. And he begins to do that very thing here in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. So look at verse 18 with me. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. First of all, Paul tells us that God reveals something to us just as His righteousness was said to be revealed in verse 17. Now that is shown to us because of that little word for that's shown to us in verse 18. Do you see it listed there? That little word for? It links the two contexts together. Some of your Bibles may have a little heading. And of course, when this was originally penned, there were no verse references. And so, it's connected together by that little word for. And so one set of verses, verses 16 and 17, is a description of the revelation of righteousness which brings salvation. The other is a revelation of wrath which brings condemnation. With one revelation, it is in a most positive context for those who believe, Paul says. With this revelation, it is in a most negative context. And notice that Paul says it is from heaven, which is simply another way of speaking about God Himself. Heaven, God, God, heaven. God the Father is presently and continually bringing divine wrath upon mankind for something that is occurring in our world. And this wrath 
according to Paul's use of the tense of this particular verb, is not simply going to be poured out in the future, although the ultimate feature of his final cataclysmic wrath will yet come. This wrath, Paul says, is already being poured out. That's the sense of this verb. It's already being poured out. But upon whom is it poured out? Notice what he says. He says, it is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What men? All men. This is one of those universal ideas. All men. From Adam on down to all of his progeny. It's all of us. It's a universal statement. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All of us. And now you can see why the little word for is so important in the context, don't you? That's why it's so unfortunate that you have, if you have an NIV Bible, for instance, they've omitted that little connector word for the sake of readability. That's really unfortunate. Because it doesn't show us the connection with the context. The righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17, bringing salvation to everyone who believes, verse 16, for or because the wrath of God is also presently being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Follow the flow of Paul's thought here. God is so gracious in bringing salvation to everyone who believes. Why? Because God is also presently pouring out His wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You have to read these verses together. We desperately need the revelation of the salvation, deliverance of God in order or because or for the avoiding of the present revelation of the wrath of God against unrighteousness. It's two sides of the same coin here. And we'd all say, hallelujah, Praise God that He's come to bring salvation, to bring deliverance for everyone who believes. But I don't want to hear anything about that wrath stuff. Well, it's here. And Paul, if he's a preacher of integrity, has to talk about both. If he's going to rightly represent God at God's bar of justice, he has to rightly represent who God really is. We want to talk about God being this gracious God who brings salvation, but maybe we're not so all about bringing to men the preaching of the wrath of God. But Paul does here. One writer characterized the two sides, God's salvation rescue, but also His wrath against sin this way. God's creative goodness is matched by His inflexible opposition to evil. Oh yes, God is good and God is gracious and God is a God of grace, but it is also that characteristic of God matched by His inflexible opposition to evil. 
It's a good way of putting it. Inflexible opposition to evil. He will not tolerate evil. But what kind of evil is Paul referring to here? Notice he uses two terms. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Asabia and adikia. And he puts these little alpha privatives on the front of the word. So that godliness becomes ungodliness and righteousness becomes unrighteousness. Asabia means a lack of piety. Impiety, we might say. The impious or the impious. Someone who's not pious. Someone who doesn't have a reverence for God. And adikia. Remember I told you that the word righteous is from that idea of the dikaios word group. Dikaiosune, righteousness. That's someone who's just. The just shall live by faith. Dikaios, that's that Greek word that speaks of someone who's just. Dikaiosune, righteousness. Someone who is living righteously. Well, this little alpha privative on the front of the word negates the word. Adikia, someone who's not just. Someone who's wicked. Someone who's lawless. And we don't know whether or not Paul actually means this in this context, but some have even suggested the possibility of this, that maybe what Paul had in mind is that he's speaking comprehensively with these two words, asabia and adikia, of someone who is, with this first word, violating vertically his relationship with God, and with the second word, violating the horizontal relationship that he has morally with other people. In other words, it may be that what Paul is rendering here with these two ideas is that this person religiously is out of step with God and morally out of step with other people. may even be a reference to the idea that this person is a total failure with regard to the Ten Commandments. With the first four, Asabia, he's out of touch with God, and with the next six, he's out of touch with man. Possibly. We don't know. It may just be generic. That's probably what I would lean toward. Maybe just generic. It's just two words that speak of ungodliness. He's impious. He doesn't think about God. He doesn't love God. He doesn't know God in the sense of an intimate relationship with God, a love for God, an intimacy with God. And he's unrighteous, lawless, wicked. Someone said it like this, Thus humanity is at once a religious and a moral failure. He requires godliness and righteousness, does God. And man is in the core of his being ungodly and unrighteous. And what is man doing that is ungodly and unrighteous? Well, it's back to the beginning of our message. They are not seeking as the chief end of their lives to glorify and enjoy God as their creator. You see, that's man's chief end. That's man's chief end. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's exactly opposite of what man does. And what they do by their unrighteousness, Paul says here, is suppress the truth. What does he mean by that? Well, this is... Really a somewhat difficult word. It might have two different kinds of meanings. One is possess. 
They possess the truth, but by possessing it, they then throw it away. They possess the truth, but then they sort of throw it away or throw it off from themselves. Or, as the English Standard Version, which I'm using, or even the New American Standard has it, they suppress the truth. I like that better. I like that better. They suppress or they hinder the truth from doing its work. They, they hold it down. It's the truth that God is to be thanked and praised and glorified and enjoyed forever and ever, but mankind, and not just simply Gentiles. I read some commentaries this week in which they say that Paul specifically has reference here to Gentiles primarily. And, and maybe that's true. And it probably is true. Because later on in Romans 2, he's going to be talking to the Jews specifically because they've been given the oracles of God. They've been given the very word of God. They've been given, given the idea of who Jehovah is. And maybe this is primarily from verses 19 on a reference to Gentiles, but certainly verse 18 is universal. It's talking about Adam and all of us in Adam. No question about it. But even in verse 19 on, is talking primarily, does Paul, to the Gentiles who have not been given the oracles of God. Surely this is talking about all men, verse 18 at least, and all men who suppress the truth, who haven't been given the oracles of God at least, but who have been told that they have the truth in God and they are suppressing it. They hold it down. They are supposed to be thanking God and praising God and glorifying God and they don't do that. Because they're suppressing the truth. In their ungodliness and their unrighteousness, they try to hinder or hold down or suppress the truth by or in or maybe even better through their unrighteousness. As I've heard it said, I think it's really good. It's as though truth is contained in a box. And sinful man sits on the box top trying to hold down the lid so as not to allow the truth to come out. That's good. That's, that's a good analogy. In other words, it's an active suppression. That's what they do. Sinful man knows that there's a God. That's the point. They know that there's a God. And they suppress the truth. The truth that's in the box we might call the world. They, they know that there's a God. And so what they do is they try to sit on the box top. And they try to suppress the idea as the truth attempts to come oozing out. And they do everything they can to suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That's what he's saying. They hold it down. And what kind of truth do they have? What is this truth that they suppress? Well, Paul will go on in this courtroom of the created order to explain the reality of this truth. And he starts now with the first of reasons for God's wrath. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Boy, that's very important. For his invisible attributes, here's the truth in the box, folks. Here's the truth in the box. You say, what kind of truth? Here it is. For his invisible attributes, namely, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. So he says in verse 19, God has shown it to them. And now he says, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. For they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, the truth which Paul asserts to the court, you see Paul standing before the court arguing his case, his case the Supreme Court of God, and he's giving overwhelming evidence now look, this is not to save a person. This has nothing to do with the saving righteousness of God. This is not talking about Paul coming before God and saying there's enough knowledge here for a person to know God in order to save the person. This has nothing whatsoever to do with that. This is actually Paul coming before God to present a case on God's behalf saying that there's enough evidence that man knows enough about God to damn man. That's what it's saying. It's enough evidence not to save a man, but to damn a man. That's what he's saying. That's why he says, so that they are without excuse. That's why he writes what he does if he's talking about the saving righteousness of God in verses 16 and 17. He's already talked about the salvation for everyone who believes. He's already covered that. This is to show man he is without excuse in the acknowledgement of God department. That's what he's talking about here. He's already covered the other in the previous two verses. Notice what he says. For what can be known about God is plain or evident to them. God has made himself evident to the world. And by the way, if this is a, revenant, uh, a, a reference excuse me, to Gentiles primarily, no one has an excuse not to acknowledge God's existence. The Jews, they were given the oracles of God. They were given the word of God. They were given the tablets on Mount Sinai. They certainly have no excuse. God visited them directly, verbally, right? But now maybe the Gentiles were saying, well, we don't know who this God is you're talking about. And Paul says, you don't have any excuse either. Because that which is true about God, you know. Because God has made it evident. By the way, the Latin phrase is sensus deitatus, the sense of deity. Paul is saying that everyone in the world, universally without exception, has the sense of deity within them. The sense of deity. And Paul says, For what can be known about God is plainly the sense of deity. Plainly, he says, it is inherent within their very beings. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe the Word of God? Do you believe the Word of God? So when someone comes to you and says, I don't believe in God, who do you believe, them or the Word of God? 
Now they, they could be confused, genuinely confused. They could be in sin. They could be covering up their immorality. And they could be wanting you to be off the scent of their immorality. But the Bible says, for what can be known about God is plain, is evident to them. There is a census de tatus. They know there's a God. I hear people talking about how unfair it is that God would condemn to hell those people groups who have never heard of the saving work of the person of Christ. But Paul's words are that they are without excuse for What can be known about God is plain to them. And if they, through their ungodliness and their unrighteousness, continually suppress the truth through their unrighteousness, even though the census datatus is evident within them, they have no excuse on the judgment day. As Leon Morris writes about mankind's guilt, people are guilty because they sin against the truth they have not the truth they do not have. He's right. But remember, this passage is not talking about the saving righteousness of God. It's talking about the judging righteousness of God. It's detailing the universal sinfulness, and if I may coin a phrase, the excuselessness of God, of man, excuse me. Not how man might have just enough light to be converted. There is an excuselessness of man that's being promoted here. There's no excuse. There is no excuse. The point he's making is that no one has an excuse to argue before God. Certainly no Gentile who has not had the oracles of God given to him, who does not know the God of the Jews, for God is plainly seen because he's shown them himself. He's manifested himself and continues to manifest himself. That's the sense of this idea verbally. He continues to manifest himself. And how does he do that? Look at verse 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul is speaking, of course, of what theologians call general or natural revelation. This is the general revelation of God. Paul is saying, look, ever since the creation of the world, God has manifested a presence of Himself. He's not left Himself without a witness, we would say. This is is God bearing witness to Himself. Now, this is very different than the term natural theology. That's a very different kind of term. General revelation is defined this way. God reveals Himself primarily in creation and conscience. And I think this is a passage in which God is said to be revealing Himself in creation and implied conscience. It is evident within them. Within the conscience of man, God is being clearly perceived. How? In creation. And Paul's going to go on in Romans 2 to say, 
explicitly. It is in the very warp and woof of a man's being, in his conscience, that God is real. That God is evident. Now, natural theology, that's a different beast. That's somebody who thinks that by looking at the world, you can argue backwards into some kind of fully developed understanding of the character of God. I reject that. And some, even within apologetic circles, wants to defend the faith by taking so-called evidences for God in creation or providence or conscience and attempts to develop some kind of common ground of thinking with unbelievers in order to then reason with them toward special revelation, which is the Scripture and how the Scripture shows us the very person of Christ. Let me just say that I don't think that's the way to do apologetics in my estimation. I don't need to reason with an unbeliever about the existence of God. I don't need to do that. Why? Because Paul has just said that the reality of God's existence is already there. I don't need to argue God's existence. He already says He's plainly seen. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. My apologetical methodology, for instance, starts here in Romans 1 with an understanding that man already has, because of general revelation, a plain knowledge of God. I don't need to try to first convince an unbeliever of the rationale for the existence of God because the Bible, which is my apologetic handbook, tells me that he already knows that God exists and is therefore without excuse. If you're wondering what kind of label that apologetic stance is, it's called presuppositional apologetics. And it's by the very nature of the term implying that there's a certain set of presuppositions to the defense of the Christian faith, and this is one of them. We don't need to labor in our apologetics with unbelievers to argue for the existence of God when the Bible so clearly says that God is already known to every human being. You say, yes, but they are suppressing the truth because of their unrighteousness, so they may begin to lose that sense of deity. No, they'll never lose that sense of deity. And while, yes, it is true that they are rebels against the truth of all that all of us once were sinners in need of the deserving wrath of God, what we must do is speak to them of our common image-bearing We're all bearing the image of God. That's our commonality. That's true of every human being. We all bear the image of God. That's, That's true of all of us. But deep within all of us is the knowledge of God. And that's where we need to find that common affirmation. All of us bear the image of God and all of us must recognize that we share also the knowledge of God. And that's why Paul says here in verse 20, His eternal power and His divine nature are clearly perceived. There's a, there's a word that I've heard so repeated in these days, especially during all of this Iraqi conflict, the word embedded. You hear about embedded reporters. That's a good word to use in this context. This Sensus detatus, this sense of deity, it is embedded in the souls of every man, woman, and child. It is embedded 
and the souls of every person in mankind. Ever since the very creation of the world and the things that have been made, God has shown Himself to the conscience of every individual. By the way, I assume, of course, that Paul's phrase, eternal power, is at the very least a reference to God's creation power. Because that's the context here. His eternal power is His creation power ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And that second term could be translated deity. His divine nature. His deity. His godness. That's what He's doing. And by the way, isn't it really funny that it says His invisible attributes are now clearly seen. Sort of an oxymoronic kind of thing. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Isn't that funny? Something invisible is visible. Something that you can't see is clearly seen. Well, it's clearly seen because God, the Creator, wants it to be seen. And where is it seen? In the heart of man. So Paul says, very succinctly, so they are without excuse. Now I hear people say, but God is unfair if He condemns such and such a person or such and such a man. If He were to stand before God's bar of justice, Paul doesn't do that. All you'd have to do is quote, Romans 1.20 So they are without excuse. And I don't say that harshly. I don't say that unlovingly. I don't say that unkindly. I say that on God's behalf. I say what Paul says in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is what God says. No one can say you are unfair, God. His indictment Paul, on God's behalf, is that man cannot possibly enter a plea of not guilty. No one can stand before God and say, I'm not guilty. You didn't give me enough information. You didn't tell me enough about yourself. You didn't give me uh, enough information that, that your invisible attributes became more visible, so much so that, that I was able to grasp you a little bit more. Just a little bit more information would have been nice. Just, just, just a little bit more, and it would have put me over the top. No. What does he say? Clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. He even gives further evidence, further reasons. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. You see the contrasts here? Immortal God, mortal man, and birds and animals and reptiles 
And you know, we're right back where we began this morning. Sinful man knows about God, but he does not honor Him as God. He does not live as His chief end to glorify and enjoy God forever, nor does he give God thanks for what God has done in His creation and providence. And instead of evolution, which is a farce, listen to Paul's devolution. They became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Indeed, the word futile here is used elsewhere in various contexts to refer to idolatry. Man doesn't rise up. He doesn't become more ingenious in his thinking. There's devolution, not evolution. And if you skip the verse 22, Paul says, claiming to be wise, they become morons. That's the word. That's the word group. They become morons. This is the word form that Paul uses to refer to the depraved, excuseless sinner. Why? Why? Because they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Incredible. The immortal God for an image resembling mortal man. As someone once said, God created man in his image and then man returned the favor. And what's worse? What's so incredibly worse? I mean, it would be one thing for man to create God in his image because Psalm 8 says that man at least is the pinnacle of God's creation. It'd be, it'd be terrible for that to happen. But what's even worse than that is that man creates God not just in his image, but in the image of a bird, an animal, a reptile. Come on. No wonder he says it's futile. And the word thinking here, they became futile in their thinking. Dialogismois means reasonings, dialogues. He's just dialoguing with himself in his own brain. That's why I read Psalm 94. Psalm 94, 4.11 may have been the very verse that Paul was thinking of here. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are futile. Oh, their foolish hearts were darkened. Literally, their ununderstanding hearts were darkened. Their non-understanding hearts. You say, but wait a minute. Their, their non-understanding hearts, the futility of their hearts. I thought you said they knew God. Oh, they know Him. But they're suppressing the box. They're sitting on the lid. They know Him. They're just sitting on the lid. That's, that's the sinful, depraved heart of mankind. They don't want to know God further. They desperately need the light of the, the gospel to penetrate the darkness. They really need to exchange their chief end, don't they? The, the, 
the need to exchange their chief end, whereas they are worshiping images resembling themselves or birds or animals or reptiles, they need to exchange it in order to serve the immortal God and begin to glorify and enjoy Him. Douglas Moo writes this, People do have some knowledge of God, but this knowledge, Paul also makes clear, is limited, involving the narrow range of understanding of God available in nature. They knew of God... The outward manifestation of God in His created works was met with a real, though severely limited, knowledge of Him among those who observed those works. This limited knowledge of God falls far short of what is necessary to establish a relationship with Him. Knowledge must lead to reverence and gratitude. This it has failed to do. Instead of acknowledging God as God, by glorifying Him and thanking Him, human beings perverted their knowledge and sank into idolatry. And we're going to read about this, the rest of this chapter, and it is gross. As we close this morning, where are you in your thinking? Is it futile? You, you have no excuse. Paul's argumentation before the bench of divine justice smotes, has smitten, and will smite every conscience. No one has an excuse. Do you agree that you stand before God, a sinner condemned under His wrath and curse? No one, no one will be able to claim any excuse. God's eternal power, the sense of deity have been clearly seen. He's made it plain through His creation of the world. And what's more, I've even given you a word of special revelation today. No one in this room will stand before God and say, I I needed just a little bit more. I, I needed just a little bit more. We've been given the word of Jesus Christ. We've been given that word that Jesus Christ saves He's our only hope for eternal life. Believe in Christ. Submit to Him. Love Him. Believe in His death and His burial and His his resurrection. Say to Him, You are my only hope to avert the wrath of Almighty God. And do it now. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father... We must see this as our only hope. This is our only hope. The wrath of God. Lord, this is our only hope. May we see, Father, Your righteousness. Your giving us Your righteousness as our only hope. Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Savior. In His name, Amen.